Part Two, Chapter Twelve of Johnny Reb and Billy Yank by Alexander Hunter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Barry Eads. Chapter Twelve, Recaptured. There were five soldiers who demanded a surrender, and each had his musket leveled, the hammer drawn back, his finger upon the trigger. Striking a match, the Federals surveyed their trophy, felt my pockets for arms, and ordered me to come along. According to a preconcerted plan, I tried the countryman's dodge, and told them that I only lived a mile through the woods, begged the soldiers to go home with me, promising them something to drink if they would come. It would not work. The Yankees had evidently more than a suspicion who their captive was, and had no idea of giving me a chance to escape through the woods. So with two on each side, and the fifth leading the way, the party kept down the towpath toward the canal boat. On the way, they informed me that they were a part of the garrison at the Point of Rocks, that a citizen had given information at the post, to the effect that a large party was building a raft, intending to cross to the Virginia side, which they had been sent to apprehend. Reaching the canal boat, the soldiers made a close examination, of course finding nobody. Then, continuing their investigations, they went down the bank. At the very point where I had started with the raft was a skiff with two paddles. Oh, if I had only waited two hours! If! Oh, the monumentous weight of an if! Some Virginians, across the way, had evidently seen the worker on the raft, and conjecturing at once who it was, had come in a boat to the rescue, and were probably looking for me then, as the party pounced upon the skiff, the sides and the bottom of which were soon stove in by the butt-end of the muskets in the hands of the enemy. So in addition to the woes of prisoners came the keen regret that friends would suffer in trying to give aid. But there was little time for either sorrow or regret. The sergeant gave the order to march, and in an hour the party arrived at its destination, Point of Rocks, a station on the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad. Seeing there was no further use in concealment, I acknowledged to the sergeant my real identity. He took me to the adjutant, a fine, gentlemanly-looking fellow, who merely asked if I had papers of any kind, and upon being answered in the negative, courteously declined the proffered offer to submit the contents of my pockets to inspection. He invited me to sit down, and for half an hour conversed very pleasantly upon the topics of the day asking many questions about the South, the morale of the army, the state of the commissariat, in all of which he seemed much interested. At last the guard returned, and I was taken into one of the unoccupied rooms of the depot, where a half-dozen meal-sacks were given in lieu of blankets, and a sentinel placed in the room. I fully intended trying to get away that night, and could easily have done so, for there was but one guard, who would probably fall asleep then escape to the woods could be effected before any alarm would be made. I went to sleep with a determination to waken somewhere about midnight, but was so broken down by hard work, exposure, and excitement that I did not open my eyes until late in the morning. Performing a hasty toilet, I went to breakfast with the guard, eating and chatting sociably together. The rations drawn by a private soldier in the Federal Army made one Reb open his eyes. How happy and contented our comrades across the way would be if they could live like the rank and file of this Yankee host. 
Breakfast consisted of loaf bread, hot biscuit, coffee with plenty of sugar, fried ham, cold beef, hardtack, and molasses. This, the guard averred, was his regular breakfast rations. For dinner, he declared, beans, rice, and hominy were issued, and that he had never bought a cent's worth of food since he had been in the garrison. When I told him how the soldiers of the South fared, officers and men, he said if his government fed him so, he would desert the first opportunity. After breakfast I was taken before the commandant of the post, a big, brawny, red-faced fellow, who first tried to scare me into fits by his scowling face and bullying tones. Then, seeing that a boy who had been trained in the school of danger was not apt to quake in his shoes and become frightened because a moon-faced officer put on a sour face and howled, he ordered his satellites to treat me as a spy instead of a regular soldier in the Confederate Army. He searched me, but I saved the money by slipping the rolls into my mouth, a suggestion for which I had to thank my friend, the guard, of the night before. He whispered the hint to me in parting, and so I was enabled to save ten dollars. It was ever thus, Billy Yank helping Johnny Reb. The examination was of the strictest kind. Pockets were turned inside out, clothes shaken, boots removed, and stockings too, while the colonel stood by, as if he expected to discover treasonable documents which would consign the youth before him to the gallows, and while putting an end to him, reflect undying credit on himself. Visions, no doubt, of the capture of Andre and the appropriation by Congress from the United States Treasury to fill the pockets and swell the fame of the brave captor flashed across his mind. And yet, as old Tony Weller said of matrimony, it was a pity to go through so much to get so little. For the most rigorous scrutiny failed to discover anything except an old Richmond passport, which only served to establish the identity of myself. This puffed-up individual was the colonel of the 1st Maryland Union Regiment, but he could hardly have been a native of that proud old state. The lieutenant colonel, who had lost his arm in battle, was a gallant and unmistakable gentleman, who treated his southern prisoner with marked courtesy. So also was the adjutant. Save these two, all the officers of the 1st Regiment with whom I came in contact were rather a rough set of men. After the search was ended, I was subjected to a pumping process, which brought up one point of information to a barrel of lies. I recounted truly my escape, but everything as regarded the strength and condition of the army, of course, as a soldier, I did not answer. I was then dismissed and sent back to the depot to await the first train to Harper's Ferry. At eleven in the morning the cars stopped. I was put on board, and in an hour disembarked at the ferry and was immediately taken before the provost-marshal and subjected to another examination, in which, despite all protest, pockets and boots underwent another severe scrutiny, it is needless to say, with the same barren results. Then I was placed in the garrison guardhouse, a horrible place, worse by far than a jail. This prison was cold, dreary, and filthy beyond belief. Originally it had been a part of the old armory building, burnt during the first year of the war. Nothing but the walls had been left standing. These had been roofed over and converted into a decent shelter so far as the rain was concerned, but afforded no protection against the biting blasts of winter. There were three large rooms connected by doorways which had no doors. 
but instead stood a sentinel with loaded musket to prevent going from one apartment to another save those who had the authority to pass the room upon the left was for the use of the officer of the day that in the center was for rebel prisoners while in the one on the right were confined yankees held endurance for a gamut of crimes running from desertion to murder the newly arrived prisoner was placed by mistake in this den of lions my citizen's suit covering the uniform was doubtless the cause of the error in a few seconds in fact as soon as the guard had disappeared from the door i was attacked by the yankees and a lively fight ensued of course it was all one way and would have ended seriously but fortunately the officer of the day hearing the racket and fearing that murder was being committed rushed in and striking right and left with his sword soon quieted the tumult i was but a boy in years slight in form and was carried out from my encounter with a room full of savage roughs with eyes bunged nose bleeding and clothes torn whereupon the officer declared that i myself had raised the row in fact was dangerous and must be handcuffed and handcuffed i was honor to the man who conceived the kindly thought due honor to his bravery it had been the fable over again of the lamb muddying the stream but all honor to the officer's charge his keen perception of the situation and his prompt measures to preserve the garrison i was then placed among my own people in the center room only six all told picked up here and there at different times for a couple of weeks i remained just about as happy as disembodied spirits confined in the chambers of dante's inferno the food was insufficient our treatment cruel and inhumane in the extreme the guards were accustomed to strike and kick the men in their charge on the slightest provocation of course they were not americans the true anglo-saxon race has but little of the tyrant or bully in it they were dutch but few speaking any english at all though the regiment was known as the ninety-third pennsylvania there was not a prisoner there who did not bear either upon his face or his person some legible scar or wound made by those dutchmen because i would not give one of the guards my briarwood i was knocked senseless and my head cut open by a brick which the dutchman picked up and threw so quickly that i did not have time to dodge i will carry the scar of that ignoble wound to my dying day another was struck on the chest by the butt of a musket which resulted in a hemorrhage a third suffered from a bayonet thrust through his leg while a fourth felt his nose grow almost to the size of a turnip rendered thus corpulent by the stroke of a fist all this without the shadow of a cause there was absolutely no authority to whom one could appeal for the officer who had temporary charge of the prisoners was a captain in the ninety-third by whose orders four out of six captured soldiers were handcuffed there could be no appeal to him it was hard to become accustomed to those iron bracelets and it would be a long time before the wearer learned to use his hands both must be moved at the same time the right must follow the left or else a sharp jerk would further wound the lacerated flesh even in deepest sleep dreams were tinctured by iron fetters and the wearer wakened twenty times a night but custom soon became a habit and after the first week they could be worn as unconsciously as the maiden sports her golden bracelet the yankee prisoners next door made day and night resonant with songs and howls at least twenty fights in the twelve hours were averaged 
only checked by the officers rushing in and hammering away with their swords at every head, while the sentinel stood and watched the fun with a grin of satisfaction on his dull, beery face. How the northern prisoners learned to hate the Dutchmen! They reviled them, they cursed them, they denounced them in all the choice terms drawn from a large and unique collection of Billingsgate, and they mimicked their broken English until the said Dutchmen were beside themselves with rage. Those prisoners were a rough set. Half of them were born in the gutter, reared in the streets, and had served a term in Bridewell or jail. They gravitated as naturally to prison as a sailor just landed from a long cruise goes to a gin shop. They passed their time in all sorts of cruel practical jokes. One circumstance will serve for illustration, happening as it did under the eye of the rebels who could attest its truth. A guard was standing in the doorway dividing the center and west rooms, in which were confined the prisoners of both North and South. He was a big, savage Hessian, some forty years old, whose ponderous fist was ever ready to strike, whose mouth was always filled with tobacco juice, ready to squirt on the prisoners of either side, on their faces, their hands, their persons. It made no difference to the barbarian. He was very fond of smoking, and owned a real German pipe the bowl of which was china, fully six inches in length, and held a handful of tobacco. It had a flexible gutta-percha tube, and when the amber mouthpiece was clasped between the teeth, the top of the long bowl came to within a few inches of his eyes. One morning he was smoking at his usual post, when the officer of the day called him hastily into the guardroom. Leaning his musket across the doorway, he laid his pipe upon a cracker-box, which stood nearby, and hurried out. He was gone only a minute, but even in that time, as quick as thought, his pipe had been seized and manipulated in some mysterious manner, and hastily returned to the same place before he was ready to resume his smoke. He took it up. The prisoners on the rebel side knew that something had been done, for they had seen the Yankee snatch the pipe and slyly slip it back but the guard had brutally struck several of their number, so they considered it no business of theirs to give the word of warning. The pipe did not seem to draw, though the Dutchman worked at it until he grew purple in the face. Then he examined it. The fire had gone out. Drawing a match from his pocket, he lit the tobacco and puffed away very contentedly. There were half a hundred pairs of eyes watching him with breathless eagerness, waiting some denouement. It came soon enough. A flash of fire darted from the bowl of the pipe and enveloped his face. The hair and beard were in a flame in a second, while the white smoke spread like a little cloud through the room and drifted upward toward the rafters. The strong man, one moment standing erect, the next was rolling over the floor in agony, lading the air with horrible shrieks and screams. Guards and officers rushed in. The odor of burned hair was filling the room with a nauseating stench. A surgeon was sent for. Meanwhile, the man was mad with pain, requiring a half-dozen men to hold him in his frenzied struggles. The doctor arrived, and on examining the patient, disclosed to view a face the sight of which was sickening in the extreme. One side was blistered black. The left eye had been at the moment directly over the bowl of the pipe, and looked only like a black piece of cork. In his torture, the soldier, in broken English, prayed to be killed. Indeed, his cries were so loud and fearful that they brought scores of soldiers around the building, who had heard the shrieks of the man half a mile away. "'Who did this?' sternly demanded the commandant, going into the room. 
Nobody knew anything about it. In fact, there were no witnesses to point out even so much as a surmise, for the afflicted man was incoherent and could answer no questions. Only this much was known. Someone had nearly filled the bowl with gunpowder, and a small quantity of tobacco on top. A few whiffs burnt the tobacco and ignited the powder with the result just related. The catastrophe had a good effect upon the Dutch soldiers, who were a scary set at best. It made them more circumspect, while those on guard thereafter kept their eyes open and their hands to themselves. At last, one morning, to the joy of all, the prisoners learned that the 93rd Pennsylvania would leave the next day and another regiment take its place. The treatment meted out to them by these foreign ruffians had so embittered them that each rebel hoped from the bottom of his heart they would leave their bones on some Virginia battlefield. Sure enough, the next morning those bullying Hessians marched away, followed by the hisses and hootings of both Yankee and rebel prisoners, who only wished that every parting curse could have been a good-sized brickbat. Our men were overjoyed to find that the place of the 93rd was to be filled by the 14th New Hampshire, who had guarded the old Capitol prison. The former charges of Lieutenant Webster renewed their acquaintance with him with pleasure, for he was as jovial and good-hearted a fellow as ever lived. He had all handcuffs off in an hour after his arrival. Glorious, sunny-tempered Webster. My heart warms at the recollection of his genial voice, warm glances, and many kindnesses. He improved the situation in every way. But all this time the subject of escape had never left the mind of at least one man who had once succeeded in eluding the vigilance of the Washington guards. I brooded, plotted, and planned, but there was absolutely no chance at Harper's Ferry on which to build a hope. Even if I could succeed in getting out of the building, the river ran on one side, the precipitous mountain a few feet off hedged in the other, while on the right and left were two bridges guarded strongly by day and night. It was a cage within a cage. If one was forced, the other would certainly hold. Yet I, who dreamed of liberty every moment, determined to make the attempt whenever and wherever an opportunity should occur, except at this one place. Rebel prisoners were brought in nearly every day, singly and in twos and threes, mostly Mosby's men, captured on scouts. On the 22nd of February, 1864, a small squad arrived, all Marylanders, caught in trying to run the blockade to Baltimore, and on the 29th, 17 more, belonging to Mosby's battalion, were captured, and the one rebel room of the prison was crowded in consequence. Of course, the new acquisitions made it more pleasant for those already garnered. But there were getting too many, evidently, for the comfort of the authorities, and on the principle that a man, when his pockets overflow, will carry his treasure to bank, orders were given to start on the morrow for Camp Chase in Ohio. The rebels filled one car and had a pleasant ride to Wheeling, West Virginia, where they were stopped for the night. The guard room was in delightful contrast to the one just vacated, being immense in size, well-heated, light, airy, and scrupulously neat with pillows and mattresses. The food was well-cooked and very palatable. But even amid these comforts, the stern realities of war made themselves felt. On every side could be seen the northern prisoners, fettered with ball and chain, and in such numbers that when they walked about over the floor dragging the iron balls, it sounded altogether like the mutterings of a thunderstorm. Many were the devices used by the unfortunates to lighten the burdens of the heavy ball, 
the most common consisting of a little wagon in which the heavy shot could be rolled about from place to place just as a schoolboy loves to trundle about mimic burdens in miniature carts here was some tangible proof of the strict discipline of the union army and the treatment accorded the yankee private of whom one had been wearing the ball and chain for six months with the prospect of six more because of a personal difficulty with his sergeant whom he had struck another lay in his bunk with his legs swollen to an enormous size but the irons were not removed some were ill but still wore the fetters all this would not have been tolerated in our army of northern virginia each new arrival had to be initiated by being tossed in a blanket just as the goat herds threw poor sancho panza in the inn-yard there was no use in resisting a dozen willing hands seized the victim placed him in a large thick blanket some twelve feet square as many as could wedge in would grasp the edges and then with united effort the body would be sent twenty feet into the air only to fall and rise again the fun of the thing consisted in the struggles and absurd gyrations of the tossed as he would fly through space indeed it was irresistibly ludicrous sometimes they would catch an old stager who would be like a lump and not move a muscle who would rise like a log and fall like a stone there would be no fun in tossing him and his speedy release would be an assured thing indeed the game to him was rather pleasant than otherwise the only inconvenience being the fear that the elastic cloth giving way he might drop upon the hard floor but this rarely happened and the initiation having been gone through with he might be sure of future peace End of chapter 12